0: message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. I want to welcome you once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this evening. If you do have a copy of God's Word, we're going to spend some time tonight in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, just a few different verses we're going to give our attention to. You've likely heard the phrase, familiarity can breed contempt, and that certainly can be true. And tonight, we've been considering what could be considered a familiar story for most of us. The stories that we've read tonight are ones that some of you have heard hundreds of times over your life. And while our familiarity with these passages likely doesn't breed contempt, hopefully it doesn't, it can at least breed a casual disinterest, can't it? Familiarity can give us the permission to move past what is noteworthy. We've heard this before. It doesn't surprise us anymore. Familiarity can keep us from the wonder in all that should always impress upon us when we encounter extraordinary things. How can this familiar story not move us to worship and praise in its beauty and grace, and its unexpected nature, How can we not be surprised that God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and came to dwell in our midst in this sinful world? The church father, Augustine, reflecting on the fact that God took on flesh and was born of a woman named Mary in the first century, said, Jesus was created by a mother whom He created. He was carried by hands that He had formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He the Word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. And this evening, as we briefly consider portions of this grand story from the Gospel of Luke, I want us to zero in on one specific image, to set our minds' attention on this image. And it's an image that highlights the extraordinary humility of our Savior, In chapter 2, we see Luke highlight one object in particular that communicates something in a disproportionate way. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we see the creator of the universe unzip time and space and step into the world that he made. He's born and he's laid in a manger. Thousands of kings were first a baby throughout history, but Jesus was first a king and then a baby and he's laid in a manger. And in the most famous Christmas paragraphs in the Bible, Luke invites us to turn our attention to a manger three different times in the span of ten verses. He mentions the manger throughout his account. And that kind of repetition should always cause us to stop and give attention to what the author is wanting to communicate. So let's give Luke and what he's seeking to communicate our attention this evening you listen as I read the verses in which we find the image of a manger, beginning in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. and describing the birth of Jesus, this is what Luke writes. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And then later, when the angels appear to the shepherds watching their flocks by night, they announce the birth of this long-awaited Messiah. And they say to the shepherds in verse 12, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And upon rushing to Bethlehem in response to the angels' invitation, this is how Luke describes what the shepherds found in verse 16. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Well, this is God's Word, and He gives it to us because He loves us and He wants us to know Him this evening. Well, I would imagine that you know what I mean when I use the phrase status symbol. In fact, I wonder what immediately comes to your mind when you hear that phrase, status symbol. Maybe what comes to your mind are clothes, or cars, or houses, or vacations. Sometimes you can wear a status symbol on your wrist. Sometimes you can drive a status symbol. Sometimes you can wear one on your chest or on your hat with your brand's logo. In status symbols, they implicitly communicate. Depending on where you live, what you drive, what brand you wear, it can communicate certain things about who you are, the resources that you have, your desires. And while homes and cars and vacations are blessings that certainly should be enjoyed, these kind of status symbols can also communicate things like wealth, status, power, prestige, importance, honor, privilege. Status symbols, they've always been a part of human society and culture. For instance, in certain eras, rings or crowns or the way you wore your hair or your body image or the color of your garments, or the fact that you owned a book or two. They could all communicate your prestige and your power and your privilege. Status symbols sometimes change the way that they're manifested, but there have always been symbols in our cultures that communicate how influential and important a person is. And the thing is, you and I, we tend to gravitate towards these status symbols. We admire them. We desire them. We want to be seen around those who have them, don't we? We might even think certain status symbols make us powerful, make us worthwhile, valuable, important. And even though we would never articulate it this way, we functionally treat others according to the status symbols that they own all the time. Well, with that idea in mind, think about how the birth of Jesus that we just read about is so understated, so ordinary, so humble, You might say, so devoid of status symbols. Are there any status symbols involved in the account of his birth that we should be attracted to him, want to be seen around him, or to look at him with admiration and desire? Like we mentioned earlier, there is a symbol. There's a symbol that pops up at least three times in the course of 10 verses which means we can't just view it as a throwaway detail included by Luke. We've got to give it our attention. And like status symbols in our day and age, the manger is meant to communicate. It's meant to say something. Just like status symbols in our culture communicate, the manger is implicitly telling us something about who Jesus is and what His mission is in this world. It might be helpful to know that In first century Israel, a manger was commonly kept in the main room of houses because animals were often housed just a few feet away in an adjacent room. In a manger, as you know, was a feeding trough for the family's livestock, some of which lived in the common area with the family. I know it's strange for us today, but animals would live inside the home. Now, we don't have time to dive deep into the details tonight, and it doesn't change the meaning or the thrust of the story, but it's likely that Mary gave birth to Jesus while they were staying at the home of Joseph's relatives in Bethlehem. But the room in which they were staying was likely a tight guest room that couldn't accommodate a woman's birth, so Mary had to give birth in the larger family room of Joseph's family's home, with animals likely in the next room. And after giving birth, Mary lays Jesus in the nearby manger, which would have been in that common room, the very place where animals would normally be slobbering and eating and making a mess. Now, in my line of work, I get the chance to be at the hospital on a semi-regular basis. And normally, the best hospital visits are those where you're heading to meet a newborn baby. Now, if you've had a baby recently, then you know that hospitals are pouring money into upgrading their labor and delivery floors. After all, it's, the, it's big business for hospitals. I mean, parents get to choose which hospital they use for their planned birth. It's something they actually get to choose. In many of these maternity wings, they now feel like overnight spas with large suites, Private chefs sometimes, comfortable beds, flat screen TVs, designer lighting, jacuzzi tubs. Some even offer in-suite manicures and haircuts. And for those of you who have ever given birth, I want to go on the record and say, I think you deserve all of those amenities. Every last one of them. You've earned it. But it's worth noting that our culture's experience of childbirth couldn't be more unlike what Mary experienced centuries ago in Bethlehem on a hard, uncomfortable floor with the animals right in the next room. And after giving birth, she makes up the manger, the feeding trough, as best as she can so she can lay her newborn baby boy down to rest. Well, as the story progresses, the shepherds are actually told to go and look for a baby lying in a manger. And after the angels announce the birth of Christ with loud worship and praise, they're told to go to Bethlehem and look for a baby lying in a manger. It's so unusual. Bethlehem would have been a tiny town, very small. It's so unusual that when they see it, and because of the size of the town, they'll know because it won't have happened twice that night. A baby lying in a manger, the Son of God in a feeding trough. And it was meant to be a sign for the shepherds. And that's an interesting word, a sign, because a sign often indicates a miracle in the gospel accounts. You likely know that. So the baby lying in a manger is a miracle according to the angels. Now, what exactly does the manger communicate? What kind of status symbol is a manger? Well, a manger would certainly have been dirty. That goes without saying, probably. We can likely be sure that Joseph and Mary did the best they could with what they had, but no matter how you look at it, there's no way to make a feeding trough attractive or comfortable enough for you to want to put your newborn child there unless you absolutely had no choice. The place where slobbering animals ate, a common manger meant to hold food scraps, is where the Son of God was placed after His birth. And it's extraordinary that the Son of God first appeared not on a throne, Not in a big influential city, not with lots of attention or fanfare. No, he appeared and was placed in a common feeding trough, a manger, in a backwater town, Bethlehem. It was completely unexpected, not how any of us would have drawn it up if given the chance. But as you come to understand the gospel story, it's clear that the manger was planned by God. It wasn't an accident that Joseph and Mary found themselves in the town of Bethlehem to give birth to their firstborn son. Some of you will know that this was foretold by the prophet Micah 700 years before the birth of Jesus. God had centuries to plan the details of this birth. He had centuries to get things in order, to make things just right. And was it not possible for God to ensure that there would have been room in a more comfortable private space? No, Jesus was lying exactly where God had planned, in a feeding trough. It was a humble, even shocking beginning. And the manger was just the first step of a downward journey to another symbol that would have been just as shocking. That symbol being the cross. Jesus, our Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, would start His life lower than servants in a feeding trough, and it would lead to a lifetime of humble obedience that led to the point of death, even death on a cross. One pastor has said, this is how the Lord reigns, from infinite deity to feeding trough to final torments on the cross. It's a journey lower, lower, lower. Now, this account reveals a whole lot about our deep need and how God plans to meet those deep needs. And we could talk all night about the implications of God visiting us the way he did back in the first century. But at least one thing we see clearly from this nativity scene is that God doesn't meet our deep needs with power. He doesn't come to rescue us through prestige. He doesn't come to win salvation for us with what we might call lots of dignity and honor. God comes in weakness. He comes in humility. We might even say He comes in dishonor. He comes as a man who's well acquainted with grief and mourning, as Isaiah says. One who had no beauty that we should be attracted to Him. And He walks the hard road of suffering through His life so that He might put an end to evil and sin and death once and for all. What we see in this birth narrative where the Son of God is laid in a manger is that God isn't impressed by the extraordinary. He isn't attracted to importance and influence. He's very comfortable being around humble, normal, sinful people. He loves to use the most humble of situations, the weakest things, in order to reveal His glory and to make good on His promises. God could have sent His Son into the world... And he could have gotten started in any number of glorious and powerful contexts. But what we see is that he comes to us in a manger. It was C.S. Lewis who once said, Once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. What happened that night in a small house in Bethlehem still stands as the most monumental event in human history. God became a man and entered our dark, cold world to redeem a sinful people. And it's amazing news for a group of people who have been battered by sin like us. The king of heaven and earth came to visit us, and that king was laid in a manger, majesty found in a manger. No other king anywhere in the world was ever found lying in a feeding trough. And according to the angels, according to Luke, If you find him, you find the King of Kings. And knowing him leads to true joy. Let me pray for us this evening. Father, we thank you for the way that you came to us in deep humility and service. And we pray that as we celebrate your birth tonight, that you would encourage us with that humility. Encourage us that you are not attracted by prestige and power, influence. You're attracted to humble, sinful people That's our great hope tonight, and we praise you for that fact. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.